tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? I do the you can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult worthy. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio. This is the Cult Worthy Classic, and here we are on episode 8. Now, just a reminder, this is a deep dive podcast, so if you want to avoid any spoilers, please check out this movie. This week's episode is the 1967 Russian horror film classic V. You can find it on Shudder, Tubi, and on YouTube. Now, one of my favorite things about this podcast is that it gives me the reason and opportunity to discover films that have slipped under the radar and assist in finding them a new audience. Most of the time, I try to spread the love for films that I have cherished for years, but every so often, I come across a film just by happenstance that shakes me to my very core. Thanks to the wonders of podcasting and social media, people like me have an easier time getting the word out of these long-lost gems, and this film is definitely one of them. 1967's V, based on the short story by Nikolai Gogol and directed by Konstantin Yershov and Georgi Karpachev, it was the very first horror film to be released in the Soviet Union. Unseen by American audiences for many years, it popped back up in the early 2000s on home video and began to develop a small but loyal cult following. However, after the advent of streaming, more and more people on social media began to praise its magnificent camera work, dark humor, and exceptional practical effects that rival many of the mainstream films of its time. Set in pre-industrial Russia, it tells the story of Coma a seminary student who finds himself bedazzled by an old crone that turns out to be a witch. After making him believe that he's a horse, she rides him through the countryside, eventually using a spell to make him levitate and gallop through the air. Now once he collects his wits long enough to fight back, he proceeds to beat her nearly to death, only then revealing that this old crone is in fact a beautiful young woman. After escaping back to his seminary, he finds himself summoned back to the small village where he first encountered the witch, where the lord of the village forces him to spend three nights with the corpse of his daughter, the young woman who bedazzled him, where he is to read scriptures aloud to prepare her soul for the afterlife. However, once he begins to read the scriptures, her corpse is reanimated and proceeds to attack him all night long each night getting more aggressive, with his only defense being a circle of faith that he draws on the ground and the power of his prayers. Now, is this all in his mind, or are there more sinister forces at work? Now, to help me break down this classic of Russian horror 
is my friend Rob of the Cadaver Dogs podcast, a horror podcast that I've grown to love over the last couple months. So, without further ado, here is Rob of the Cadaver Dogs podcast. Let's start the show. And I am here with Rob of the Cadaver Dogs podcast, a horror podcast I've been enjoying a lot lately as they deconstruct horror films. And they usually do like two films per episode, just a lot of great insight. And what I like about it the most is that they don't talk all over each other like most other podcasts do. Well, at least most of the time. But to get more about this podcast, I've got Rob here. Rob, how you doing? Hey, what's up, man? Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm a big fan. Uh, and I got to say, we edit a lot. That's why we don't talk over each other. Well, at least you have the courtesy to edit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because if there's one thing I've learned about, especially film podcasts, we've all got opinions and we all want to get like our two cents in. And when you've got like two to three people on a show, that's mm -hmm. why I usually just do it by myself. But when I have the guests, I was looking forward to having more people on this one, the rest of the dogs. That didn't work mm -hmm. out this time. That's great. We'll have you gone on again just to see how I can converse with more than one guest because I'm really excited to try doing that. And I'm sure there'd be like an editing opportunity as well if that was the case. Yeah, yeah. I think kind of our like plan is to just be the opposite of every single news program you've ever seen. Right. That's kind of our like entire philosophy with the conversation. Just, I mean, we disagree, particularly me and David. I don't think we agreed on any points ever within this show. So we just edit out all the yelling and the cursing that usually goes on during the recording session. And that's the thing too, is like when you're speaking about like those news programs, especially when you're watching them, like those panel shows, you got eight faces on a screen. You're like just bombarded with information and just visuals. You don't know who to follow, but when you're in a podcast, you want to make sure that you can at least recognize who you're listening to and get an idea what their opinion is. Because honestly, it took me like two or three episodes to figure out who you guys were individually <laughs> as I was like listening to you talk about these films. Right on. That's pretty interesting because I feel like in person you would never confuse one of us for each other. But I guess since we're just like a disembodied voice, it's a completely different ball field with that. Well, except Devin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess Devin's pretty easy to pick out. Yeah, she's awesome. I actually had a previous podcast and she used to come on and guest all the time. And that's kind of how this whole thing got started. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you want to give us a little bit of history about Cadaver Dogs, like the title and just how it all came together? Right. So the title, um, a cadaver dog is a police hound that is meant to find dead bodies. So they sniff out uh, body parts that are lost in the woods, for instance. And they're so good at this, they find bones that have been buried for like 30, 40 years sometimes. So that's almost like a true crime-esque angle we went with because we felt we were, we were digging up the bones of like horror films, you know, like the skeletal underlying... Uh, themes and theses that the filmmakers might not come out and tell you and you might not understand on the first viewing rather than just going over our opinions or the technical aspects of films we felt like that had been done before but maybe just like a thematic discussion of films comparing two films we hadn't you might not consider often from different decades that's really what we're trying to do with the podcast and that's why i really like it because it's kind of what i'm trying to do with this one you know i have two shows the Cultworthy podcast is more of like an exposure show where I want to get like mm -hmm. these obscure films that deserve more of a cult following out there. But then I didn't feel comfortable putting in classics like this in the same category as 
Chopping Mall or Shocker from Wes Craven, you know? They need a little bit more respect, but they also deserve a little bit more dissection. And that's why I have guests on every week so we can do this. And yeah, you, you guys just were like right in my lane of how you deconstruct these films. And that's why I was really excited, especially to talk about this one. This one's kind of obscure. Not a lot of people have mm-hmm. seen it. And if there was a cult-worthy horror film out there, I would say that this would be at the top of that list to get exposure for. Yeah, absolutely. I had actually never heard of this film until you presented it to me. And I'm very excited to dissect the first Soviet-era horror film. Exactly. And, you know, what's interesting, because when we talked about this, setting it up, we weren't dealing with all the things that we're dealing with now in that part of the world. When you go back and watch Soviet cinema from all eras, Mm -hmm. it's really easy to kind of see where they were politically or financially or ideologically during these eras of cinema. And, you know, I I don't know a lot about Nikolai Gogol, who wrote the short story this is based on. I've never read a lot of Mm -hmm. his stuff. He's very influential in both like the goth movement and the horror movement. And it's something I really want to dig into. Before we even jump into that, let's tell the people what we're talking about. Today we are discussing the 1967 first Soviet horror film, V. V, a name from out of the past that rings like the shrill cry of a bird in the dark. A name that very few people in the West still remember and know to fear as they should. A lot of his early stories are fantastic stories and so he became a great source for these films now this is a film based on a short story that is i'd say mostly defined as a folk horror wouldn't you agree yeah i would think so there's definitely a lot of like folklore going on in the background And I'm curious to read the short story eventually. I kind of want to do that rather quickly while I still have it fresh in my mind. But there is like a lot of paranoia to the film. There's a lot of hallucination and augmented thought based on alcohol. Like Uh our main character, Coma, is drunk like 90% of the film. (laughs) And while he is dealing with supernatural forces and witchcraft, which we'll get into... There is a lot of questions about like how much is his impairedness from alcohol actually a part of this? And that's something I can't wait to dig into a little bit later. So yeah, but what did you think about this film just from the first viewing before we dive into it? What was your first reaction when you saw it? So, so I have kind of a caveat, which unfortunately I watched a dubbed version of the film. And I think that definitely colored my viewing experience in sort of a negative way but it's intercut with some russian or is it ukrainian because i think it actually takes place in kiev part of it right yeah which is modern day kiev but used to be modern day ukraine but used to be part of the soviet union the movie is extremely interesting and i watched it with my wife and both of us were kind of glued to the screen especially in the finale which i'm sure you want to discuss more in depth later is absolutely amazing it's crazy it's off the wall and i didn't expect any of that agreed the first time i watched this film now this is something that i'd seen mentioned in like film books like the leonard malton video guide when i was a teenager i remember seeing the name never knew what it was never cared what it was Mm -hmm. i literally found this on tubi about a year ago 
just the cover art fascinated me. Had no idea it was Russian. And I think I've watched it maybe four or five times since then. Because, man, the camera work in this film, the use of like rear projection, all these practical effects in 1967 that we actually see filmmakers like Sam Raimi and Ken Russell start using, it makes me wonder if they had a chance to see this when they were kind of cutting their teeth in what kind of filmmakers they wanted to become. And that's why I really wanted to talk about this film specifically on the cult-worthy classic. So how about we dive into it? Yeah, let's go for it, bro. Okay, so it takes place back in, I'm guessing like the late 1700s, early 1800s. Like it really is hard to kind of define what era it takes place in, but it's definitely pre-industrial Russia. We find ourselves in like a seminary school where all these seminarians are learning how to preach the gospel, teach the gospel. But what's funny is it's right before they're about to go, like, I guess, on their spring break. They have like this little song. Their headmaster comes out, tells them, hey, don't get too crazy during your break. Come back. We're going to learn some gospel. And it's essentially like monks gone wild. They just start Mm -hmm. having a party. They start drinking vodka. They're fooling around with the villagers. So, yeah, it it doesn't really let you know what kind of film experience you're in for. Yeah. um, I wonder, I mean, how much the film did you actually find scary? Uh, There there are certain parts that are kind of like riveting, especially when he's um, watching the dead body and he's all creeped out. That kind of made me feel like a little uneasy. But a lot of it was quite humorous, right? Exactly. There's a lot of fun, though, to be had. And uh, it kind of... I think it gives you like a different angle of view into how the monks were at the time Mm -hmm. and probably how some of them are now, because I'd assumed that that was kind of an avenue for the underprivileged to kind of get some money. Maybe they were too poor to get on with some other type of career. So they might not actually be that devout. And I think that's what we're seeing with coma, right? Really a good monk in the traditional sense, is he? No. And he's not even like really a good hero. And this is where I kind of was talking about, like, the influence that I saw in, like, future Sam Raimi films. I mean, not to jump too quickly into it, but I would say that Coma's kind of like a proto-inspiration for Bruce Campbell's Ash character. You know, he's 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 cowardly, yeah. but he's there to do a job, and he doesn't really do it out of courage. He does it out of, like, the necessity to survive. And just there's like you said, there's a humor to it, kind of like a black comedy humor, but there's also a lot of visual gimmickry, almost kind of like mimicry and mime going with these filmed moments of horror that we're seeing. Yeah. So the image reminds me the most of one of the original adaptations of Beauty and the Beast. Have you ever seen the French adaptations? Especially the hands coming out of the walls. Yes. That was probably a direct ripoff, I would think. Yeah, yeah, it's really fucking cool. Um, Especially when the creatures are coming up and down the walls. But yeah, so in Act 1, I I like how disorganized everyone is. You get this idea that we're witnessing a country without organization. Mm -hmm. So... And I think that might be a commentary of the current regime of the old regime, because if it is taking place in the 19th century, which is, I'm going to guess you're probably in the ballpark of 1700s to 1800s. I'm going to guess it's mid 1800s. Mm -hmm. 
I think the current regime is being very critical of the old regime, perhaps in a way. So I was wondering if you viewed the beginning of it as like pro or anti-religion in a way, because the Soviet Union was not a religious state at all. It's almost as if the people in charge of the seminary are like, it's their last grasp of any of their roots, of any of their like ideological history. But they've mm-hmm. just got a bunch of these knucklehead kids that are really just there, like you said, because they don't have any other options. And they're obviously not the best students. I mean, Coma obviously doesn't know all of his scripture. I mean, he mm-hmm. keeps having to go back and refer to his books, and he keeps having to like think about it. And there's something really interesting, too, is like they talk a lot about that Cossack pride. You know, mm-hmm. uh, a Cossack fears nothing because there's nothing to fear. He chants, he chants that many times throughout the film, every time he's like kind of freaking out or doesn't know how to answer a question about what's going on. So it's kind of just like this uh, going, get tough, tough, get going mentality where it's like he doesn't really have the skill or the knowledge or maybe even the faith. So he relies on alcohol and this kind of like self-assurance and these little (laughs) mantras and chants he keeps telling himself to keep himself from kind of like falling out of favor. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of liquid courage going on. Um, <laughs> I, I, I want to. You mentioned that you weren't sure if certain scenes were real or not, and there's a scene uh, towards maybe the end of the first act, beginning of the second act of the movie, where he first gets to the town and he's super drunk, and three of the same guy walk into the room. Yes, and that immediately um, lets us know that we have an unreliable narrator here. Exactly. So, I- is it possible that he's imagining? this entire uh, supernatural experience with the witch and he really dies of guilt. I, that is definitely something that's crossed my mind. There's, there's little hints. And again, I haven't read the short story, so I don't know. We could be just like talking nuance of the film without even talking about the source material, which is fine because people do that all the time. Maybe that's what the filmmaker was actually trying to say is like, we're just taking this story as like the root and we're going to make our own, story out of it we're going to make our own presentation of it but that is something yeah that is something definitely because like for one as act one kind of like goes towards act two coma and his two buddies get so drunk at this party that they get lost Mm -hmm. on their own way home they get lost in the field they can't find where they're going they see an inn or actually it's like it's like a little cabin they see a cabin Mm -hmm. a little farm they get to this house they hop the fence and there is a very old folk horror-ish hag who offers them to stay the night, but she divides them up. She's like, okay, one guy can stay in the loft. The other guy can stay in the boat that's out back. And you stay in the stable. And this is Coma. So she leads Coma to the stable. And when I say hag, she is that stereotypical folk horror hag, the crone. Like it actually was a man that played it (laughs) just to kind of give people the the visualization of what this person is. And she immediately starts coming on to him. Like she's kind (laughs) of throwing it at him, trying to kiss him. And he's like, no, no, I would rather die than, than lay with you. Is something the matter? What do you want? Good woman. Look, good woman, I have my pride. Not for all the gold in the land would I let an old crone like you tempt me. (laughs) You're not in the flower of youth, you know. Good Lord, 
She's a witch. Shameless witch, put me down. Let me be, I beg of you. In the name of God, in the name of Christ, put me down. Let me be. So that's it. If I'm not making you fly, it must be Christ. Christ and his apostle Thomas. And this is when we realize that she is a witch because right. she like bedazzles him and turns him essentially into a horse. Yeah, she gets on his shoulders and she flies with him <laughs> to some other place. And it's it's kind of it looks fake, but it's like a cool special effect. And I'm always talking with uh, my own podcast about this, that practical effects like stand the test of time because there's actually something there that we're witnessing. Even if it doesn't look realistic, it is still like tangible. It's real. Whereas if you look at even CGI from 15 years ago, some of it just is like an eyesore. A hundred percent. Right. It's a really clever use of rear projection and early day blue mm -hmm. screen. I mean, 1967, you're, you're seeing effects that are, are kind of on par or better than the wizard of Oz with probably a tenth of that budget. Like, yeah. when I looked yeah. at the budget, it was 50,000 rubles of whatever that was back in 1967. I have no idea how much that was. But with whatever That's they did insane. with it, and there's such a great blend of actual on-set cinematography that they uh -huh. intermix with like rear screen projection or mm. they're on a set with, you know, obviously fake brush. But the way it mixes together, it kind of adds to the discomfort. You don't know what's real. You don't know what's fake. And we kind of get the feeling that that's where Coma is in his state as well. So it really kind of puts us in his state as he is the quote-unquote protagonist. Yeah, there's a lot of very simple tricks. Um, towards the end, they have people crawling on the ceiling or the wall. And what they did was they just painted windows on the ground of a set. Yeah. So they could just crawl down. I think they did some sort of uh, fast forward or rewind to make them look like they're moving a little faster than they should be. Yeah, but I, I go back to that scene when he first meets the crone and the crone like mounts him and comes on to him and then he beats her to death mm -hmm. and it turns into a young woman. And when he flees, that's the young woman that he has to later go spend the night with for three yes, nights, actually. For three nights. So, so I'm wondering if... The reality is that he found this young woman, he rapes her, he kills her, and in his grief, he creates his own story that it was a crone and it was a witch and she bedazzled him because he's a man of the faith who could never be, uh, you know, lured into this kind of sinful lifestyle. Yeah, which is why I've seen other reviewers call it an anti-sex film, that he gets killed because he had sex. She gets killed because they had sex. That that seems very uh, in line with like, you know, orthodox religions. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? I think it's an interesting point. There's also some things where it's like I don't know a lot about the filmmakers. Uh, the mm -hmm. director, his name is Konstantin Urshov, and the other director was Georgi Kropachev. They, I didn't really look into much of their their film history, but this is what I kind of get from the film because before we even go further. There is some clumsiness to this film. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say clumsiness in the narrative, not as much as in the filmmaking. 
But like you said, we watched dubbed versions. So who really knows how much of the actual story we're getting? Maybe we're getting a heavily truncated part of the exposition. There might be more to it that we missed. That's the problem with some of these you know, foreign films. If you're only getting a dubbed version, you know you're not getting the entire story. But like you said, after he kills her, he turns into a young, she turns into a young woman. He flees back to his seminary, which they're surprised to see him because he's supposed to be going home for this little spring break. But like the second he's there, he falls asleep, wakes up in the morning. The lord of this manor that this woman mm. belongs to, that very morning is already sent for him. So we have to think that within the time that he thinks he killed her, she right. obviously was alive long enough to say, I need the seminary in coma to deliver my last rites before I die. Dominus Gomba. The daughter of one of our richest landowners is dying. The one who owns the estate just 50 versts outside of Kiev. Yesterday, the girl returned home, pale with death. They did what they could to no avail. But she expressed a wish that in her final agony, the last prayers for her salvation be said by you. But, Father, why me? I had nothing to do Don't with Don't argue it. with me. You will leave immediately for the country. Go prepare your things. The poor girl's father was good enough to send his men here with a wagon to fetch you. You'll have to get somebody else to go, Father, because I am not leaving. The devil take you and your wretched tongue. No one asked you if you wanted to go or not. I said you're going, and that's that. And this is the interesting part, because the Lord of the Manor sends his little group of peasants, his yeah. little crew, to collect Coma and take him back to the manor. They would make it back to the manor on time for him to deliver last rites if they didn't stop at the inn and get drunk for hours. And that wasn't yeah. Coma's idea. That was their idea. So again, there's like a little bit of like a fork in the road narratively of, you know, Coma kind of suffers the consequences of her dying and everything that happens in Act 2 and Act 3 based on the decision of these guys who want to stop at the inn and get drunk. Right. I mean, unless she's a witch from the get-go which it's the thing that we the narrative presents is what actually happens the literal story because then if he were to get there before she died he would probably face the wrath of the witch faster maybe and it wouldn't take three days for her to break his magic circle that he draws on the ground exactly um it's also interesting that he's there for fear of the lash they threaten to lash him a thousand times if he flees and he does flee and they catch him immediately and bring him back, <laughs> which I, I don't know. I guess the guys he ran from are very fast because it seems like he's right next to them, runs away, and then they're right in front of him. Well, I also still think there's like a little bit of bedazzle going on, too, because he mm -hmm. he feels like he's run forever when really he's just in the backyard, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Like he's run like miles and he's only like made it maybe 100 feet is what it turns out to be. Yeah, but I, I'm thinking that this Lord really just wanted to take him and put him in a room with his dead daughter so he felt guilty enough to confess to his crime, and instead he died. But then the woman turns into the crone at the end, and the priest of the seminary sees it. So we don't know if he's really seeing that or he's seeing a church destroyed by coma. We don't really know. There's a lot of am ambiguity to the film. Yeah, a ton of ambiguity. Did you happen to think? that there was something fishy about these guys that come collect him because all of them had snow white hair. And they even make a joke about it when Coma's hair turns white out of fear after the second night with the witch, 
that he's like, oh, he's got white hair like Yonov, you know, the other guy. Yeah. And they all ask him what happened in the church last night. What happened in the church last night? Almost with a sense of familiarity, like they've been there before. Maybe not in the sense of like reading last rites, but they've definitely had some kind of experience either with the witch, the crone, the daughter, or just whatever malevolent spirit is lurking around that area. Did you get that feeling at all? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, since we are unsure of the role of this woman, whether she's a crone or a young victim or something else, uh, I mean, perhaps, uh, lack of a better word, like a comfort woman or a an escort who's like servicing the town and mm -hmm. this guy is serviced. So that's why they all know her. I don't really know. Um, but it is interesting if it is just a witch that all the men there suffer her curse. So that could be the case. It could be this folktale. And I mean, as you probably know, a lot of folktales have hidden meanings. Well, yeah. And I had, a, I had a conversation about this with another podcast, you know, um, when you talk about language versus lore, you know, because there's so mm -hmm. much of human history where the majority of civilization did not have the ability to write or read all of their lessons, all of their stories and parables were handed down through lore. You know, and obviously in this little village, you've got like the one master of the village who has all the money. Everyone else is a peasant. There is kind of like that idea where we're dealing with a very master peasant peon mentality of this village. Mm -hmm. And there's a weirdness to it because after the second night of Coma going through drawing his circle of protection, reading his gospels as he's supposed to, to pray for this, you know, dead witch who comes to life. Mm -hmm. and haunts him and torments him, and the only thing protecting him is this circle of faith, essentially. Even corpses have been taught to fear the word of God. Am I right? Absolutely. You better stay there. Don't you know that a Cossack doesn't fear anything? There's no way for anyone to come in. And if demons or corpses try to threaten me, I have prayers to protect me. As soon as I speak the holy words, no demon can possibly harm me. It's true. They'll never touch me. He's being afraid. Obviously, he's afraid, even though he's not being physically harmed at that moment. There is a definite sense of fear there. I'd be scared to death of that shit. After the second night, he goes out and he says, I need music. And the peasants start playing like this little song. He puts on his Cossack hat, drinks vodka and starts to dance. And all of the peasants and villagers are laughing at him and laughing with him. But there's something kind of creepy about it, almost like one of those wicker man situations where there's almost like this undertone that everyone in this village knows exactly what the hell is going on. In a sense, they're almost kind of happy to see a man of God, a seminarian being tortured this way. So that's why I think that maybe this 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 witch is actually a malevolent spirit that's worked its way around the village, maybe from person to person, woman to woman, man to man. Mm. You know, that that's the kind of idea that I got from after his second night of torment. So that is really interesting. You should also note that uh, they're always calling him philosopher. I, I don't know if that's just a translation or that's theology and philosophy do go hand in hand a, a lot of the time. Um, it is interesting what you mentioned about the oral traditions of like um, old backwoods societies or antiquity, how a lot of it has changed over time. So 
what we know of the folklore and what the original story is, the Inceptions has probably changed a great deal by the time we're hearing it. Mm-hmm. And that there, this unreliable narrative is has gone down through generations. Like there's a lineage of unreliable narratives until we get something and we write it down. So where this story started or what it's supposed to be about could be very different from the way we're seeing it in the same way that the uh, the main character, Coma's understanding of it is skewed and the way it's being conveyed to us has changed a lot. So our wondering of what's going on with the Lord is he's viewing Coma with suspicion from the get-go because he's yeah. accusing him of some sort of crime because he doesn't understand why this young woman would call for a holy man. By name. By name, exactly. That's kind of the ambiguity with which we have to view the film. Is it a witch who is... All these people are contaminated by her and she's parading around as a young woman in this town? Or is it actually a young woman who was killed by this priest and now they're viewing him with suspicion and watching him unravel, kind of knowing he's about to face the noose? Exactly. He's the outlander. And instead of burning him in a giant wicker man, he gets to go through this torment of being haunted by this witch for three nights in this church, which is... I mean, what kind of church is that even? I mean, it's essentially like this giant cathedral um, steeple. There's really no place for gathering. There's no place for mass. It's essentially just one almost like cylindrical shape that goes really high. You couldn't fit the entire village in there. And there's like really no pulpit. He has like a little kind of book stand that he puts in the middle. If anything, it's more of like just a place to display the bodies during the days after the death before they done the wake or whatever. I don't know the Russian traditions of whatever it is, but there's also something interesting. The fact that it's three nights. I mean, cause you know, the number three is always synonymous with witchcraft. So it's interesting that it has to be three nights and not just one night. Well, I, I guess it has to be a Trinity because there's the Holy Trinity. So it's kind of intertwined within the yeah, theology yeah. itself that if you invert it or double it, you get six, six, six or whatever. But you know, the Trinity is always kind of being, um, manipulated you know some sort of like blasphemy for exactly magic and whatnot and occult practices uh, i read somewhere that the church was actually realistic i don't know if that meant that it just looked really cool i was reading some sort of article on this um i assume that these kind of small villages in the rural areas of ukraine and russia were very small and they probably only had half the town was able to fit in them at once yeah yeah it's really interesting so, you know, the first night that he spends in there, she does not awaken until he starts reading the scripture. Like the second right. he starts reading the scripture, her eyes open. And it's interesting because she can't see him. And that kind of leads to something towards the third act as we meet all these different demons and, and, and monsters and ghouls. But she can't see him. And she goes through this really intricate, almost like act of, of mime where she is trying to break through his magic circle and she's putting her hands against the invisible wall, and she knows she's there. So the first night, obviously, is the least scary for him because, A, she can't see him, and she can't break into his circle, but let's be honest. This is a reanimated corpse that is trying Mm -hmm. to attack him. Yeah, so I I love her performance because it's one of the only performances that isn't marred by it being a dub because she has almost no dialogue, and it's very physical, the performance. Mm -hmm. Um. It is it is a mimetry. It's kind of great. And I'm I'm sure you're gonna go on to the second night now where she uses the coffin as a battering ram. 
a battering ram and a surfboard, essentially. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and she kind of turns into a pendulum and bounces back and forth off the invisible wall, which is a great practical effect. It's a great practical effect. And I was looking for behind-the-scenes photos of this. I was desperate to know. We're talking mm. about this is before Steadicam. Right. You're, seeing a, you're, you're probably dealing with a lot of crane work, a lot of dolly mm. work, but there is also a lot of really well done handheld motion and, and movement in this, like the tracking shots of this, they do such a great blend of like smooth to shaky and jittery. I mean, it's really ahead of its time. And I don't know if that's out of artistic decisions or out of necessity, whatever it is, it works, man. And so this, the first night it just kind of wets her palate, you know, yeah. she, she mimes around a little bit He's all freaked out. It's the second night where things really start getting insane. That's when he has to get his liquid courage up. He shows up completely bombed and immediately starts drawing the circle on the ground. It's the first so thing he does. <laughs> yeah, right. So the town folk are going in and erasing his magic circle each night. Because, uh-huh. you know, you can see it erased on the ground. He's yeah. not doing that himself. So I, there is this idea that they kind of know something's going on. Like, why else would a, a preacher draw a magic circle around himself of course this village doesn't have their own preacher so this ta- this um church likely is not in use or vacant or i could be wrong and they're all on spring break like you said maybe their preacher is somewhere else too but i i get the idea that they don't have a lot of exposure to these type of people that's why they kind of view him with like awe and suspicion at different times mm-hmm. so even though he's like their captive they still speak to him with a slight hint of respect, although they know he's kind of like a sacrificial lamb. It's a weird dynamic, but it's it's all under the guise of this like juvial Russian drunkenness. Exactly. And that's why I really say like the folk horror aspect, like I don't want to say they're a cult. I want to say that they are mm-hmm. more of just a communion of people who have a very strong belief in something and maybe he is a necessary sacrifice to keep this mm. this spirit this malevolent spirit at bay or keep it satisfied from harming the village but mm. you really get this idea that like they know what's happening to him so maybe he is a necessity to the village and you know who knows maybe it's like some kind of harvest festival tradition or or planting festival tradition we've seen this in midsummer we've seen this in mm different folk horror films of the last 50 years, some of the Hammer films. I really think that like there is something grander and maybe we're just losing it in the translation of the dubbing. Like I said, I really want to go back and read that short story, but Mm. just the way it's presented. Yeah. There is a malevolent idea to the village, especially with the headmaster offering him a thousand pieces of gold or a thousand lashes. If he refuses to do the job, (laughs) Yeah, you know, so, yeah. so yeah, that's, that's my whole kind of take on that, especially during that scene where he dances the jig before the third night. So I do want to talk special effects. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think of V the big crazy costume with the eye flaps? Let's lead up. Let's lead up. Let's lead the listeners to this. Right. So night three, this is what we've been waiting for because each night gets worse. Right. Now, as night three comes along, each night, she gets more and more powerful. And her right. name is Panachka, by the way. That's the name of the daughter. That's not maybe the name of the crone or the witch, but that's the name of the daughter who has died. 
So on night three, he goes in with probably the most courage he's ever had. He's like, uh, Cossack fears nothing because there's nothing to be afraid of. He's going to go and he's going to get this night through. What he doesn't expect is that each night as she's gotten more powerful and realizes that he's getting more brave and more powerful against her, she's got to call out the big guns. She can't handle just scaring him on her own anymore. So she pretty much starts off with, I summon the powers of ghouls and werewolves and the demons and the goblins. She summons pretty much every single mythological and folklore creature in what is a stunning display of practical effects, nightmarish makeup. I mean, the makeup, man. Before we get to V... Let's talk about that makeup on these creatures. So so they all have this kind of like gray and blackish makeup on them. Makes them all look like ghouly and stuff. And they have, you know, little people running around coming out between people's legs. They have hands coming in and out of the windows and the walls. And people are crawling on the ceiling and there are bats. It's crazy. It reminds me of the paintings that we'd see of like the days of the bubonic plague. You know, like kind oh, right. of like the Renaissance time when you'd see like all these frescoes and paintings of of like the demons and the ghouls that people portrayed as the plague. You know, mm. nightmarish creatures. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen Ken Russell's Gothic, and there's that one troll that like sits on your chest and it's very disfigured and frightening. It comes from like that era of this interpretive art. I feel like all these creatures are kind of like based on that. It's a real kind of folky idea of what, like, before people knew about germs, these were the spirits that were causing death and sickness and pain. And so these are, like, personifications of them that she's called from the underworld, essentially. They can't get him. He's protected, but she calls the big gun. She summons the all-powerful V. V V-I-Y. And yeah, he comes out, and he's very almost cartoonish. Yeah. <laughs> there's kind of a there's kind of like a comedy to him, but the way I looked at it is he's not obviously frightening because he does have I guess one kind of hindrance to him. He can't open his own eyes. He has these large stone eyelids over his eyes and then really short stubby hands that can't physically lift his eyelids up. Mm. Now, according to the mythology of this creature, you are only vulnerable to him if you look him in the eye. So that's why Coma's circle fails. Because V says, Lift my eyelids so I can see. The goblins lift his eyelids, and Coma stares right into his green glowing eyes, and in that moment, he has pretty much destroyed all of the protection of God with his circle. It's almost as if he's accepted that evil exists, evil is real. He's almost allowing himself to be susceptible to it. Mm. So that kind of goes into your whole idea of guilt, man. Yeah, yeah. It kind of feels like he really views it for what it is, and he is confronted with stark reality, and he can't handle it. So he dies. Yeah, V is kind of cartoonish. He's cool. Like, it's fun. And the whole thing does is like kind of reminiscent of like these like uh pictures depicting like Dante's circle of hell. Yeah. You yeah. know, where it's like hyper surreal and there's like a lot of shit going on because 
a lot of the time when you see this stuff, there's a lot of close-ups. You see a monster here and there. But this really looks like an elaborate fresco painting. What is the name of that festival where like people reenact art and classic art, but it's like Oof. people in poses? They make fun of it in Arrested Development. It's like this festival that some towns do where they'll say they'll have like Michelangelo's birth of Adam or whatever, creation of Adam, okay. but it's actually real people posing as, as the art. They're dressed oh. up and they're, they're painted like the art. It reminds me of something like that, and then the art comes mm -hmm. to life mm -hmm. and attacks you. It's like the, your worst nightmare in that sense. Now, to give the people an idea of like what V looks like is like think of something from Labyrinth or think of something from mm -hmm. Never Ending Story. You know, and again, when we're talking about influential films and influential set pieces and art design, that whole last scene, we've seen definitely people take influences from that in future films. Like, if I watch NeverEnding Story, I could probably pick out five creatures that look like the creatures we see in the climax of this film. Same with Labyrinth. I feel there's a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of um, parallel thought in this creature design. And that's why, like, to me, this film was such an amazing discovery because, like, okay, 1967, this is probably a film that played only at art houses or maybe, mm -hmm. like, film school libraries. Mm -hmm. Like, this wasn't, ex I looked it up, this really wasn't accessible until 2001. So we got a really? lot of on, on home media at least. Wow. So yeah, that's there's a lot of things that I'm like, oh my god, did did Frank Oz see this film? Did Jim Henson see this film? I mean, even some Monty Python stuff, some Terry Gilliam stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like there's a lot of that in this movie. Yeah, I I did get that vibe of like the stone eating creature from Never Ending Story. It's funny that you say that. Yeah, I. It, this must have been an influential film in some regard. And, and I'm now I'm interested to see some other Soviet era horror films that followed. Are they still in this vein of like criticizing religion and the bygone era? Or are there, are there some more contemporary ones? I really have no idea. Have you seen any other Soviet era film? Not of this time. Like I want to say the first film that I saw Soviet era might've been Solaris just because there was a criterion of it. You know, Tarkovsky is like the only real Soviet filmmaker I'd seen until like we start seeing more films in the 80s and 90s. Right. And and in Tarkovsky, the only similarity that I can draw between this film and his work would be maybe the beginning of like Andrei Rubilov when they're all drunk and jumping around and the guy's making jokes. Otherwise, they're very, very starkly different types of filmmaking. Yeah. But I mean, after this, man, I definitely want to go back and dig into that. Like this movie was such a mm. it, it's a springboard for me, you know, because right. like Alphaville is what got me really looking into French New Wave films like that, that right. film and seeing parts of it in Blade Runner and seeing parts of it in like Children of Men. There's a lot of influence there. So that was kind of like a springboard for me to go back into French New Wave. Yeah, this is a springboard for me to check out Soviet filmmaking, especially horror, gothic, folk tales from the 60s and mm -hmm. 70s. Like, now I'm definitely going to go dig into it. Yeah, I mean, when I try to draw, like, parallels, I kind of get, like, uh, Russell, I think it's Ken Russell's Demons mm -hmm. is in there, sort of similar, especially the scene where all the nuns are freaking out and pretending they're possessed. That is similar to the finale of this. Or maybe uh, it's another Russian film that came out not too long ago called Hard to Be a God, if you ever heard of that one. Oh, uh, no, I haven't. No, it's quite interesting. And it's, 
I, I think it's similar because it's also in black and white and everyone's insane in the film. Everybody. It's it takes place on another an alien planet that never had a renaissance. So they're still oh. kind of stuck in this medieval turmoil. It's it's a, it's a difficult watch because it's like three hours long and it's bizarre as hell. Hard to be a god. Hard to, check to be it a out. god. Something like that. Yeah. So as the film comes to a close, you mentioned kind of earlier, he is killed either by guilt mm-hmm. or by these demonic forces. You know, like you said, ambiguous. Right. We don't know if it was all just a hallucination from all the vodka drunk in this film. Like there's gallons of vodka in this film. <laughs> Uh, everyone's got a bottle. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting too, is like you said, the philosopher teacher, like his instructor, his seminary teacher comes in after the rooster crows. And every day that he's saved, he's saved by the rooster crowing at dawn. That's when everyone goes back to, you know, the, the demons go to sleep. Essentially the philosopher walks in. And like you said, it's no longer uh Panachka laying in the coffin. It's the crone. And Coma is dead on the floor. And the headmaster is terrified and runs out. He doesn't even, like, investigate. He just leaves. And then there's an interesting fade. Like, it crossfades back to the seminary. Mm -hmm. And we just see these two seminarian students who we've, I don't think, seen before. I don't think they were in the intro. They're speaking of Coma as they're drinking vodka, and they're supposed to be, like, painting or fixing the church. And they're already speaking of Coma as an afterthought, almost as if he's like a legend already. You know, Mm -hmm. the legend of Coma. He died from this and he died from that. So we really don't get like a real kind of closure for Coma's story other than like he died. Yeah. And they also don't believe the headmaster's tale. At least one of them. The one who's not doing any work. The other one's doing a little bit. He's pretending to do work and drinking. And that's when the headmaster walks over. He goes, are you guys working? And they're like, yeah. He goes, good. You should keep working, which is just great dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) But it kind of goes back to your point where you're talking about like how the, the ideology of the day, the religions kind of crumbling under whatever new regime this is. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this kind of like flippant discussion between these two students is kind of like the epitome of that. They're really just there because they have nowhere else to go. Yeah, I, I definitely get that vibe that the seminary school is kind of like almost a home for lost boys mm-hmm. or like unwanted orphans or something. It's kind of like a refuge of sorts, which I I don't think that that's not particular to Russia at this time. That was probably worldwide. And I think it's still the case in some places. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So I would say like, you know, again, we're watching a film that we saw dubbed. Maybe we're losing something in translation, but it's not a very satisfying ending. It's a satisfying climax for sure. Mm -hmm. Coma's climax is very satisfying, but like the denouement, there's a lot to be desired. But then again, I'm going to play devil's advocate and say that we're missing something in translation. Yeah, uh, that's very likely. I am a sucker for the ambiguity and I think that's really interesting storytelling, but I'm with you. I think there likely is something that we lost, especially when you consider that some of the prayers he's speaking at the end, they don't bother dubbing or putting subtitles. He just speaks. He just speaks in Russian and it sings, which I know. And his acting there is like, Oh, you're like, this guy might be a good actor. I can't tell if he's bad or not because of the dub, which is leaves a lot to be desired, man. Exactly. All in all, before we kind of talk about 
what we feel is like the future influence of this film and maybe some of the little facts that we discovered after the fact. If you were to pitch this film to someone who's never seen it or suggest it, like what would your selling points be? You know, because like you and I are film guys, we'll pretty much watch right. anything to deconstruct it. But let's say like someone who's, what is this movie you're talking about? Let me tell you about this movie. Like, what are your selling points? Oh, man. So, I mean, the, the obvious one is first Soviet era horror film. I think anyone who's into history or even modern history would be interested in maybe seeing that. You have the religious angles. And then I think most of it is the selling point of the spectacle at the end. Hey, this might be what influenced Jim Henson. Yeah, it's 100% the same. The, the, the camera work, just the camera work, even if it wasn't a horror film. It, it reminded me of like the first time I saw Evil Dead 2 when I was like 13 or 14 years old. <laughs> and yeah. just like the kinetic camera work where the camera is actually a character. It's not mm -hmm. just telling the story. It is the story. I rarely think of an earlier influence than this now. Like 1967 where the camera is a character. I, I have a hard time reaching back and thinking of a film where... I want to say cameras used to be able to capture the spectacle. You know, it, we're, we're talking about at the same time, we've got films by like David Lean and John Ford at this time, just capturing vast landscapes and all of this Cinerama and stuff like that. And here's a film where the camera is getting like right in your nose. I mean, I think if American audiences saw this film in 1967, they wouldn't know what to do with it. They'd probably go outside and throw up. Yeah, maybe it is. It is frenetic. Uh, you know, this is probably a little bit after, but I think he's a Ukrainian uh, filmmaker. I like Andrei Zalowski. He made Possession. Yeah. If you had ever seen that, Possession is yeah. one of my favorite. I think movies. <laughs> um, mine too. Uh, I, I you won't see it here. I have the poster on the wall over there. But um, what's his first film called? The Third Night or something? Mm -hmm. Has insane camera work. And coming right after that, there's another his second film. I forget the name of it, but it's this hyper surrealist story that I, I think you can compare to this one. Yeah. So these are made six, seven years later, maybe. Yeah. The films I'm talking, Zalowski's early movies. And you get that crazy in your face uh, camera work that is still like of some sort of value. Because I think we've seen people run around with the camera in the slashes of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. It's just that for the most part, they're awful. Whereas this one, you know, <laughs> there there is some sort of merit to it. Yeah. No, 100%. So inspiration-wise, I think the most obvious one that we can talk about is Mario Bava's Black Sunday is right. definitely influenced by this. And then when I went back and looked into it, sure enough, he references the short story mm. as one of the influences for Black Sunday. But then this film has been remade and had unofficial sequels, like several of them. They did a remake in 2014 with Jason Fleming, which I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Then they had a 2010 Serbian remake, which I haven't seen, but I want to go see. They even had an interactive CD-ROM game that was made back in the Ukraine in like 2018 based on this story. So I feel like, man, somehow America got left out of this kind of cool trend hmm. of adaptations of this story and of this film. 
and now I want to go back and find them. And who's no, they're probably disappointing. Otherwise we would have heard about them more, but dude, that's what my job is. Like I have these podcasts to like watch these things. So if they're good, I'm going to tell you to go watch them. And if they're not, I'll just be like, Oh, you're good. Just stick to the original. (laughs) I I saw some clips of an animation uh, of it. And I wonder if that's from the CD-ROM game or if there's an animated adaptation also. Uh, I, obviously haven't seen it i just saw that on one of the reviews yeah. of it and i don't even know if it was a review of this version or the animated version because they were showing clips of the animation which seemed very in line with this version because the main character had the same haircut and everything yeah um, of course that might just be how cossacks dressed yeah, possibly but i, mean, I know like- it's it's funny seeing a seminary student cossack because the cossacks i'd known were running around with swords right and and the big hats and the boots yeah I just think it's really interesting that like you and I, two cinema podcasters mm-hmm. who have our finger on the pulse of of film of pretty much all eras, and somehow this one got by us. I mean, you know, international horror, there there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen quite a few Japanese horror films, yeah. older ones, but the Russian ones I haven't haven't really dug into that yet yeah um ian from the cult connection he and i are doing onibaba in a few weeks and he had never heard of that one and i'm like dude you're in for a treat because he and i talk a lot about a film called uh the corruption of chris miller i'm not sure if you've seen that one i haven't seen that one. it's a spanish giallo from like 1973 and it is kind of loosely based off the onibaba tale and yeah i that's exciting i can't wait to hear what he thinks about that one because again classic japanese horror way ahead of its time. The difference is that one did get a lot of recognition early mm-hmm. on. So it is kind of like in the zeitgeist, I want to say, of of people with film. But man, this one just came out of nowhere. I literally clicked on it because I thought the cover art looked cool. <laughs> That's so awesome. Onibaba's <laughs> great. It is a lot more risque than this movie. Uh, I wonder if that's part of it. But like Japanese cinema was always kind of like fearless. It's yeah. too bad modern day Japanese cinema isn't very good. It really is a shame. Yeah, we you, we get very few yeah. um satisfying films at least on this side. Koreans mm-hmm. on the other hand, man, I love South Korean cinema. I always have back to the like the early mid 90s when Tartan Asia Extreme was pumping them out. Yeah, I was all about that collection. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, those are really good. And uh, I wonder it do we even have access to North Korean cinema? I, they, they don't have any resources. There's no way it's very good. Um, all I know is I'd like be interested. All I know is that those clips of like that, that story where I think it was Kim Jong Un's dad who yeah. kidnapped the Japanese filmmaker and had to make a monster movie. <laughs> that's that's he, that's terrible, but it's very funny. It's really funny. They actually kind of yeah. made like a satire of it, which I've never seen, but I've heard about it and, and heard it talked wow. about. Um, so I'd like to ask this question of all my guests. If you were to pair this film with another film on a double feature night, whether it's a complimentary film or a contrasting film, what would you pair with this movie? Uh oh. Devils. Devils. Um, you know, you have Oliver Reed, who's one of my favorite actors. Um, and he's a really bad priest. He's a really bad you know, priest. He's a really bad priest. <laughs> I mean, he he kind of he has his redemption, but uh, at the Cossack of this has a little bit of redemption too. I'd argue. Um, yeah, I think those two at a double feature would be awesome. Just because 
a lot of people that I know have never seen Devils. I mean, it's a hard one to find. I mean, right. it's never had like a solid American release. I've got a bootleg DVD that I got off of eBay like 10 years ago that I think was a VHS rip. You know, like it's, it's, it's kind oh, of a really? hard one. Yeah, it's kind of a hard one to find. I mean, I, I've seen Region B discs available, but I'm holding out till like it's yeah. an official release. You know, I've made that mistake before with Possession. I had a, a bad VHS rip of it. Finally got the Umbrella version that came out a few months ago. But um, I would pair this one, honestly, with Evil Dead 2, just because most of my friends would be more into it. And I want to be like, you know what? I want to show you something that I think was the genesis of the kinetic and frenetic energy of this one. That's that's really interesting with Evil Dead 2, really. Yeah. I think there is kind of like this reluctant hero parallel and just like this this reluctant need to survive without being incredibly smart because everyone knows that Ash is a coward until he's got nothing else to lose and then flips it around. And then you just see that visual imagery that I feel like I'm not saying that Sam Raimi ripped it off. I'm saying that there is out there in the ether this energy you see in this film that definitely works its way into Sam Raimi's visuals. So, so yeah, maybe another film that would be good paired with this. I just looked up the name of it is actually called the devil by Andre Zalowski, which uh, I, I think he's actually Polish. I completely misspoke. I don't think well, he's Ukrainian. He, I know he's Polish, but I think that he was born in Ukraine because I read an article a few weeks ago about filmmakers, filmmakers that, um, are from Ukraine during this conflict. And, and there was a bunch that were kind of spread out through the wind. So yeah, I, I believe I read oh. that a couple weeks ago. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. He, he's a globe hopper cause he's made films in Germany also. Yeah. In English, like possessions in English, even <laughs> though he's a Polish film director. Um, but yeah, the devil is another surrealist frenetically paced, insane type of film um, that maybe you could pair this with, but that's, really going off the hype of the finale yeah so i mean evil dead 2 that's an interesting one i think uh both you know you have your very flawed protagonists in both of them i think that's kind of a cool mix yeah i mean just because like i said showing the people in my circle they would appreciate that double pairing while i would probably enjoy your pairing more Right. I'm thinking of myself as like the host of the party, you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't want them to like sacrifice me at the end. <laughs> like yeah. uh, you made us sit through these films. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of my circle of friends who are like into history and are reporters and whatnot. And I think to them, I would have to kind of work the angle of like it's not a horror film; it's a historical document. That's an excellent that's way to put it. And that's where we should watch it from. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool, man. Well, this was a lot of fun. Um, I can't wait to do this again with uh, with the whole crew. Do you got anything you want to plug while you're on the show? Uh, no, we just have a, a lot of episodes coming up. Uh, we just dropped Fright Night and Nightcrawler, which is a really interesting film uh, duo about tabloid exploitation and all that. And if you guys haven't seen The Nightflyer, I definitely suggest checking it out for the ugliest vampire ever to grace the film, grace the golden screen. Uh, yeah, that's all I have to plug. Just check out Cadaver Dogs and obviously keep listening to Coltworthy. They're awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Antonio. Yeah, absolutely. And if you guys ever need a third chair, let me know. I'd love to jump on and and uh, talk about some things with you. I love that you guys do double features. That's like the best. Like 
and they're they're usually contrasting and that's the best part you know like who would ever i night flyer and nightcrawler just because i guess they have night in the title but man like yeah films i haven't watched in a long time and then i'm like oh yeah i can't wait to go revisit that especially nightcrawler man like what what a great film awesome what a great film well, thank you very much, Rob. The Cadaver Dogs podcast, check them out. And if you're tuning in next week, I'll be having Matt from Decaying with the Boys talking about Night of the Living Dead. He is a Pittsburgh guy, so we'll be talking about his personal connection with Night of the Living Dead and all the Romero films. So tune in next week for that. My name is Antonio Palacios. This is the Cultworthy Classic. And Rob, I'll see you later. See you later, bro. Have a good night, everybody.